podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am a senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Luis Romero, who is the SVP of advertising for North America at The Guardian. Why do you want to have Luis on the podcast? Yeah, so I've actually been um, chatting with him uh, quite a bit over the past couple months about various stories, um, but he's been extremely helpful in reporting. And there's been a lot of information I just haven't been able to include in written content. So I thought it'd be great to have him on to chat a little bit more um, thoroughly about the state of building an advertising business in the U.S. when The Guardian is um, originally a UK-based publication and the challenges that come with that, but then also the opportunities and just how um, large the the U.S. and North American market is, um, especially for uh, publishers that are coming from, you know, a much smaller market in the U.K., but a significant one at that. Um, and so, you know, in the past couple of weeks or months, he and I have chatted about um, the different kind of variables that go into that job. And uh, we've spoken about, um, you know, changing direct advertising strategy to focus less on breaking news and more on kind of tentpole moments that um, are considered to be brand safe, which, you know, is definitely a big focus for advertisers. Um, And we've also chatted about the struggles around brand safety um, in a programmatic setting and how much of an impact that's had on their programmatic business, um, both in the U.S., but also in the U.K. Um, And so I thought it'd be great to have him on and, again, just have a deeper conversation about all of these different factors um, and and give a more holistic view of of what my reporting has looked like over the past couple of months. Nice. Like, on that front, because... He was, was he the Guardian executive? I know you spoke with someone from the Guardian for that piece you did recently on like verification firms and publishers, Mm -hmm. uh, frustrations, let's say, with verification firms. Yeah. So he and I chatted about that. And we um, also chatted with another person on his team, um, his his colleague in the UK, Katie uh, LaRuez. And they've been struggling with the role that verification firms play in the open programmatic space. Um, And there's been a lot of internal changes that they've tried to take on to improve the situation, um, trying to get agencies and advertisers um, more comfortable with buying direct programmatic versus going through the open marketplace, but then also doing a lot of just petitioning, um, honestly, in the in the advertising world to verification firms to get them to classify um, non-news content as such and trying to get that uh, label um, of breaking news off of their entire inventory, um, which is something that I think a lot of news publishers have been talking about lately. So um, yeah, we're definitely going to dig further into that topic because it's one that's, it's a concern that's been shared with a lot of news publishers I've, I've come to find out. Um, and there are a lot of changes that are happening internally and uh, externally that uh, Luis has talked about to try and mitigate some of those challenges. Got it. All right. I'm interested to hear more in this conversation. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, Tim. Luis, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I am doing great, Kaylee. Really excited to be here talking to you. Thank you so much for being on. And um, I appreciate it extra because I know we've spoken so many times over the past couple months for various stories. And so I figured 
why not record one of these conversations and share it with everyone? Because I feel like every time we talk, we touch on so many different areas of what's going on in the advertising space. And The Guardian is uniquely positioned in many different markets. And um, anyway, it's it's great to have you on. And I'm, I'm excited that we can dig into some of these topics a little bit more deeply um, in you know this 45-minute conversation. Um, but I guess to start out for our listeners who aren't as well-versed in uh, The Guardian's North American advertising business as I am at this point, um, it'd be great to kind of maybe do like a state of the union um, of what all your job covers um, when you joined The Guardian um, North America. And then uh, we can get in a little bit more into the business side of things. But yeah, a little bit of background about um, your role would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So I joined The Guardian. It's actually The Guardian U.S. Um, we kind of rebranded ourselves because uh, The Guardian has been in existence uh, at the U.K., um, in the U.K. for over 200 years. Uh, and we came over to the U.S. over 10 years ago. Uh, and we realized both with audiences and uh, readers that there was kind of confusion with, is this a UK paper? Is this a UK site? So we rebranded ourselves to The Guardian US. Uh, so I joined The Guardian US over a year ago. So I literally just had my one year anniversary with them. And it's been really excited to, to come here. Um, a little bit about myself. I kind of grew up in the multicultural world. So I worked at Univision at NBC's Telemundo. I started off my career working at an ad agency that focused on the Hispanic marketplace. Um, but after all that, I moved over to Group 9 Media's uh, multicultural division, and I really got to work with different brands, um, including Now This News. And at Now This News, which you know, you're, you're not in your head, uh, they target the younger uh, millennial and Gen Zers. And there was so much happening um, during the time that I joined in terms of post-George Floyd and the climate crisis, um, identity in terms of LGBTQ plus and the AAPI communities that I got to work with all of them. Um, so when I got the call from The Guardian, I knew they were doing a lot of important work in all of these areas and the opportunity to come in and actually lead their sales efforts, uh, I couldn't resist. So it's been a year. Um, and as I said, a little bit more about The Guardian, uh, we came to the US over 10 years ago. We started off here both as a print publication uh, and also as a, a publisher site. Uh, we realized quickly that Print was in a decline and there was no need to continue with that. So we went strictly 100% digital um, over five years ago. And um, really our, our mission really is all about purpose. Uh, so uh, it's another reason that I actually you know, joined um, is because there are, it, we're rooted in everything purpose. So it, it really permeates through everything that we do. So first thing is that we're B Corp certified. Um, so for those of you out there who don't know what B Corp certified is, um, think Patagonia. It's probably the most famous uh, brand that's B Corp certified. Um, and 
organizations and companies um, want to make sure that they're meeting the highest standards um, and being accountable and being transparent um, in factors like the environment, DE&I. And so they go to B Corp Labs to uh, basically give them the how good housekeeping stamp of approval, uh, making sure that a third party is holding us to the highest standard. So we're B Corp certified. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we're not owned by any uh, one person. Uh, we're not traded publicly. We are owned by the Scott Trust, um, which is sits in the UK that was created um, over 150 years ago. Uh, and it was really to create it to give us independence in terms of our journalism. And the other important thing is that it funds us, basically, the idea is to fund us into perpetuity. Um, and so really they have no stake in what we do and how we do things. They just want to make sure that um, all the profits that we're generating are funneled back into journalism. Um, so it's great to have the Scott Trust um, behind us as well. Uh, the other thing you should know about The Guardian is that um, we're very big into covering the climate, but we have our own climate pledge, um, including taking no advertising from oil or fossil fuel companies. Um, the other thing that I know you know about, uh, Kaylee, is that we have a philanthropic arm. Uh, so the philanthropic arms uh, works separately, but alongside the commercial division um, and what they do is go out and work with uh, philanthropic um, organizations like the Gates uh, organization uh, to help basically fund journalism that we otherwise wouldn't be covering, but that we'd like to do. Um, and the last couple of things is that uh, we are reader funded. So that is yet another stream that comes to us in terms of revenues. Um, and the reader funded funding is all voluntary. So we have no paywall. Um, and that's really important because we want to make sure that we provide access to any and all readers. So that's a, a very long-winded way of saying that um, after all my multicultural work and working at Now This News um, and really looking around the world and what was happening, I was really excited to the, join The Guardian because it really aligns with my values. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much to dive into um, beyond that. But I think my first question for you is, given the fact that The Guardian has um, all of these very kind of mission-backed principles and the way that that incorporates into the advertising space, which you now oversee, um, I guess, like, what does advertising look like in a way that um, the, the brands themselves are, like, what are they, I guess, selling to your readers? And is it uh, very much in that kind of corporate or DE&I or, um, you know, mission-oriented kind of lane? Like, how are you approaching advertising with some of those principles in mind? You mentioned that you don't take ad dollars from oil companies, which I know a lot of uh, other media companies have, you know, come into fire under um uh, having done so somewhat recently, but what are some other kind of ways in which those things meld together when you're working with advertisers? 
Yeah, I I think um, one thing I'm I'm really keen on uh, with my sales team is that we be unapologetic about who we are and what we represent, um, and and it's kind of liberating to be working with a company like an organization like the Guardian um, and all the values that it stands for, as you referenced, um, because it makes it easier to go to an advertiser and say to them. Um, we only want to work with you if you have something of value that aligns with what we do uh, and that could be beneficial to our audience. So uh, as you know, within the last two to three years, a lot of companies have been um, talking about uh, their CSR initiatives, their ESG initiatives, uh, doubling and tripling down on those messages because they know that it's important to uh, their constituencies, um, which are which really are ours, um, and so we find ourselves really working a lot with um, those types of messaging, and it can come from a lot of different different sectors in the marketplace. Um, so we find that over the last year, uh, a lot of companies are kind of incorporating these messages within their regular branding. So that's first and foremost, who we wanna work with are CSR, um, ESG sort of budgets, um, corporate reputation budgets, um, Mm -hmm. NGOs as well. Um, We've had the benefit though, of also proving ourselves in being a, I'm gonna call ourselves a performance site, which, you know, given everything we just talked about, uh, you wouldn't think of The Guardian as a performance site. But because of the audience that we attract and because of the engagement that that we have with our audiences, um, we do really well with um, those brands that are looking to uh, really feature KPIs. So in terms of performing metrics, um, we work with streamers. Um, so entertainment is kind of a big category for us. Um, and we know that they're really looking for, uh, new subscribers or they're looking to capture those subscribers that are going from one streamer to another. There's a lot of churn in the marketplace now. So, um, we work well with them. Um, tech is a big part of what we do as well. Uh, and I would say, uh, Another category that is starting to kind of come around um, and kind of aligns with what we do is auto. So we don't want to work with auto if they're necessarily um, publicizing all the oil consumption um, part of their engines, their ICE engines. Uh, We do want to work with them if they're talking about EVs. Um, So I think that is another opportunity for us. So... um, you know, we kind of run the gamut um, on the categories and the types of advertisers that we work with, but that's a quick snapshot of what we do. Curious about the tech category, because I think in reporting about, uh, especially in the first quarter this year, there's been a lot of publishers saying that tech budgets have nearly evaporated from their mix, um, given all of the layoffs and all of the, um, you know, uh, cost cutting that's been happening. And, and 
is still happening. I think Meta, what was it, this week announced another like 10,000 layoffs or something yes. like that. Yes. Um, how has the tech budget, like I guess, or tech advertising um, space been for you guys? Have you noticed like a, a different kind of pattern there? Um, just again, because so many people have said that there's money somewhat coming in for Q2, but like Q1, it was, you know, all but gone. I think for us, Meta, uh, in terms of the tech category last year, um, we found a lot of uh, tech organizations, again, wanting to talk to us about the sort of CSR corporate reputation um, advertising. So that's when, so it's tech, but it's tech um, under the guise of corporate reputation. Um, that's that's really what we're, we're seeing. And, you know, we have repeat sort of business from these kind of big, really big brands, again, because they see how engaged our users are with their messaging. Um, we do a fair amount of branded content um, where we're working with these advertisers, um, creating a storyline, creating content that aligns um, with what their marketing message needs and wants to be. Um, and that really works. It really works um, with, with our readers. So we've we continue to see that happening going into next year. Uh, you referenced um, Q1, and I know you and I talked about Q1 um, several weeks ago. Um, we had the benefit of having the World Cup in Q4, and we took that opportunity. It was the first time that really we went to market with a kind of big World Cup, men's World Cup initiative. Um, and I think we benefited from the fact that we were out in the marketplace kind of showcasing The Guardian um, and really making people realize that we're something beyond just a new site. Um, and I think that helped us generate momentum into Q1. So we're ending this quarter um, in a really great spot um, and going into the next quarter, Q2, um, with a lot of momentum. Yeah, that's that's awesome, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure corporate reputation is something very big on the minds of tech companies lately. Um, again, given everything that's going on, so that that does make sense. Um, so, I guess uh, digging into your direct uh, advertising business to start, because I have a lot of questions around programmatic, and we've talked about that quite a bit lately. But for the direct side, you just mentioned the Men's World Cup. Um, package, which you had done uh, in the fourth quarter. And we've talked before about how you're looking to replicate that again um, for the Women's World Cup this summer. But can you talk about your approach to direct advertising and the strategy that you're kind of honing around um, more evergreen or uh, if not evergreen, more like um, world events versus breaking news? Because as we'll talk about with the programmatic side, breaking news um, and hard news tends to have a brand safety issue, um, at least with advertisers uh, being concerned with that. So from a direct side, um, what's that strategy been looking like and how is that already kind of coming into fruition for this year? Sure. Um, for us, in terms of our direct sales strategy and what we're trying to do, I, um, you're absolutely right. We're focusing on world events um, and we're selling and trying to sell sponsorships, people that want to align with some of the coverage that we have. One that I'm really excited about as an example, uh, and this is so Guardian-esque, is 
the World Championship of Chess. Um, so yeah, so when we think about sports, you know, we, we think of, you know, of all the, I guess, uh, physical, uh, agility and all of that that happens in sports. But, you know, there's this thing called chess and there's a world championship of chess where, as an example, next, next month. Um, and I'm really fired up about it because it's, it's very different from what we typically do. Editorial coverage is going to include profiles of, uh, that game's superstars. Uh, there's going to be a special focus on on women coming up in in chess. Um, there's going to be a feature on the best boards that you can play chess on. Um, for me, the most striking feature, and again, very analogous to regular athletic sports, is that we're going to have a live blog, literally capturing the moves, the different moves of the chess players, and. Kaylee, people are fascinated by this. We have huge engagement. Um, so those are the type of things that we can go to market that are very unique and very innovative. And when we talk to um, companies about this, they can see themselves being aligned with this um, kind of mental agility, um, strategic, strategic thinking, um, sort of sport. And that's for some companies, that's the messaging that they want to be in. Um, so that's one example. Um, another example in terms of Evergreen is that we have an ongoing editorial series called Green Light. Um, and the Green Light series explores, explores the role of global corporations um, and the role they need to take in solving the climate crisis. Um, and so that's an ongoing series that we have here. Um, and again, we're going to market um, with sponsorships for that particular uh, client series. Um, I think the third way that we're kind of continuing this, and I know we're going to talk about the programmatic side of things and um, kind of breaking away from just news, is that, as I mentioned before, we do a lot of branded content. So this is original content that's created by our, what we call our G-Labs team, um, and really just trying to align with an advertiser's brand themes. Um, and so we've had a lot of success here working with people like the Ford Foundation, MailChimp. Um, I forgot to mention that we also, B2B is uh, another big category for us. Um, and AWS, Amazon's AWS. Um, so those are, you know, I would love to talk more about the Women's World Cup as well. Um, that's going to be a big focus of ours. Um, and that'll be in July. And so we're really excited about that. So kind of like these signature tentpole things. Um, I mentioned World Cup um, because the Guardian, um, a lot of people wouldn't think about the World Cup or soccer with the with the Guardian. Um, but a little known fact is that we've been around for 200 years in the UK, uh, which puts us roughly um, starting at around 1820. And soccer was actually... Uh, they call it football over there. Uh, actually, they call it football everywhere except the U.S. Um, was actually uh, formalized as an actual game um, in Britain, in Manchester. Um, and that was done in the 1860s. So we literally have been covering um, the start of soccer in its formal way since its inception. So we have a legacy um, 
um, we have legacy. And then because of that, um, we've been covering it every single year since the World Cup started. So um, we have a right basically to, to cover this. We also have a live blog on the World Cup where we're covering the matches literally um, step by step, game by game. Um, so it's very big for us. Um, the Women's World Cup is going to be in New Zealand and Australia. That's virtually our backyard because we publish not only in the UK, not only in the US, but our third country is Australia. So we'll have reporters down there doing behind the scenes on the game coverage. Um, so we're really excited about the World Women's World Cup as well. Yeah, and so a uh, couple things to dig in from there. With the World Cup, I think I had had um, uh, the athletics uh, head of revenue on the podcast. Since they're just adding advertising in, and even though their sport's endemic, the, um, uh, Seb Tomic over there was saying it was difficult really to break their way into some of these, um, you know, legacy sporting tent poles because advertisers, you know, in some cases have been planning for, you know, a couple years out. Um, and so I'm sure the legacy is definitely a strength there having those kind of return customers. Um, I guess thinking about return spending right now, right? Like, um, you've been in the U S for 10 years, but you've been covering, um, football, for 150 years at this point, trying to do the math quickly in my head, 200 years. Um, like, how has the repeat business been given the economic impact that has been affecting advertising budgets, especially big, you know, or larger direct advertising campaigns? I feel like there's been uh, a lot of pullback on some of those um one, budgets, but two, being able to plan so far in advance. Have you noticed any issues with getting some of the partners either signed on or spending as much as they would in previous years um, in this current economic climate? Yeah, absolutely. I think for the, uh, I'll talk about the World Cup first because, um, again, I've been here for a year. The Men's World Cup was the first time that I'm aware of in the U.S. that we actually went to market with sponsorships opportunity and um, we were successful. We had one exclusive partner for that. Um, and that got me excited about the Women's World Cup. And, and I think, um, I think you mentioned Seth, I think he's absolutely right, you know, trying to break in to these sort of budgets because they are planned so far behind or so far ahead of time. Um, I know this because I covered the World Cup um, and sold it while I was at Univision and at NBC. Uh, Telemundo, who has the rights now. So I know very well how far in advance they are planned. Um, but I really felt like we had not only the legacy and the expertise, but kind of gave us a right um, to go after people who want to be associated with the World Cup. Um, I think uh, looking ahead to the Women's World Cup, um, some I think there's an opportunity to kind of capture uh, budgets that are uh, being planned right now. And I think because of the kind of economic situation that we may be in, um, that people are really looking for ways to stand out, even if they, 
they have less money to spend. Um, and so something like a tentpole event, um, like the Women's World Cup or, or the World Championship of Chess um, is a way for them to kind of really stand out. Um, so for me, I don't have the background on whether the World Cup advertisers are coming back again. Uh, everything is new for us. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a great spot to be in. Kind of talking about the overall business um, in terms of repeat business, um, I think you may know that our fiscal year actually ends um, at the end of this month uh, in March. And so our new fiscal starts in April. Um, we've had a late start um, in terms of you know RFPs and people talking budgets uh, to next year. Um, <clears throat> But within the last couple of weeks, um, we've seen that really pick up and um, a lot of um, our, I would say, more major advertisers um, from last year's fiscal have come to us um, talking about what they're planning to do um, in the upcoming fiscal year for us. I think for us um, here at The Guardian, it may be a little bit uh, too early, but I can tell you that uh, the next quarter, I'm almost taking it by a quarter by quarter basis. Uh, and I'm hoping that if I'm reading uh, the trades, including you guys, um, that the second half of the year perhaps will pick up. But for us, starting off the year, um, I think would, would be great uh, because it, it puts us in a really good position uh, for the upcoming 12 months. Yeah. And um, I think if I'm recalling the stat correctly, this year, um, your direct revenue, uh, t- direct advertising revenue increased, was it 40% year over year? So you've had decent growth in the past fiscal year, I guess, yes. already. Yeah, the, it's it's been, uh, I'm going to characterize it as phenomenal growth um, because it's, um, it's difficult, you know, it was a difficult marketplace and, uh, you know, really what we did is just really lean in our strengths. Um, some of those categories that I just talked about and really uh, your question was a good one earlier. Um, not going after every single category or every single advertiser, just really leaning into things that make sense for us. And I think that put us in a good spot and we want to continue to do that, uh, next year. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so um, I do want to move into um, some of those conversations around brand safety and then um, ultimately getting into programmatic. But um, interesting about the chess uh, coverage, right? Because with these larger tentpole events, they're it seems to be like an inherent amount of brand safety that comes with it. These are exciting moments. These are areas that, um, you know, are, are game oriented and have a lot of, um, people excited around the world. Uh, I mean, I personally don't watch chess. However, in the, I guess, sporting realm, it would be one of the ones I would watch. Um, But that said, like, I know that there was a big kind of cheating scandal that happened in the chess world uh, a few months back. When those things get incorporated into coverage, does that then kind of bleed into the brand safety issue at all? Or do you still find that there's a layer of um, security for advertisers uh, when you're kind of framing packages around, you know, sponsorships for tentpole events like this? Like, how does the brand safety piece come into play um, in those moments where, yeah, you have to cover the scandals too. It's not just all, you know, happy game coverage. 
No, it's a, it's a really great question. We saw that happen firsthand um, in the Men's World Cup because there was a lot of controversy about where it was being held and how those workers were being treated um, in Qatar um, or Qatar, depending on who's talking. And um, so we certainly covered that and we were not going to stop covering it. Um, so I think the way we frame it up to our advertisers and is that that's what we're about. We're never going to stop covering this. And if it's part of the World Cup or in the case of chess, uh, a cheating scandal, then that's part going to be part of our coverage. And I would say there's not one advertiser, I'm sure there are others that I haven't talked to, that hasn't said that's okay. That's what you guys, the Guardian US, is about. That's your integrity that's why we love being with you. Um, so we don't shy away from it. Um, so that's number one. I think number two is, um, and now we're going to get to the programmatic and verification firms. Um, it's another reason why we like selling and working with advertisers directly because there's an opportunity to have a conversation about brand safety um, and there's an understanding um, that that happens. And so it's not just a click of the box um, as if you're automating. So there's a really true understanding of what's happening contextually um, in in the environment. Well, we'll swing into the programmatic realm now. Um, I want to dig a little bit more into like the number breakdowns too and, and how um, significant advertising is in the U.S. or North America now. So um, when I wrote a story about uh, the the British invasion of, of U.K. publishers into the U.S., um, it was a, a an update on how that process has been going. Um, but uh, one of the stats that um, your colleague Steve had shared at the time was that almost half of the readership um, from The Guardian is based in the U.S. or North America, but it's only about 15% of revenue right now comes from North America. Um, and so from an advertising standpoint, I know that there's, uh, and we've again talked about the um, issues around programmatic revenue and how troubled that's been for news publishers holistically. Um, but when you're looking at the breakdown between direct and programmatic um, in the in the advertising revenue space for North America. What's the kind of um, breakdown look like now? And as direct grows year over year, what are you hoping that breakdown will end up looking like um, in the in the coming year? It's been so the breakdown of our revenue has been traditionally more skewed toward programmatic, um, and within the last year, it's been shifting to become more 50-50. My hope is that direct sales overtakes that. And I think we're in a good trajectory to actually do that, where it becomes more 60-40. Um, if I took a look at it right now, that's probably where we are right, right now. Um, I haven't taken a look at it you know, in the last week or so, but I think um, going into uh, the next quarter, Q2, that's probably where it's gonna be. We understand programmatic. We don't want to do away with programmatic. Um, I, I want to sell a lot more direct. We're a challenger brand in the U.S. Um, even though we've been here for 10 years, it's really um, all the investment we're getting from the U.K. Um, to grow is against all our different um, assets. So we want to grow reader revenue. 
Um, we want to grow philanthropic um, donations. We want to grow. We want to grow audience, but we want to make sure that we keep the audience and um, extend engagement in the audience. So we do want to grow audience, but we're pretty big already. We're about uh, 50 million uniques, and we certainly want to grow um, advertising. And the way I look at it is that um, there's um, huge opportunities to grow it from a direct standpoint. And in the meantime, I think there are opportunities to grow it programmatically, but we really want to be thoughtful and strategic about how we grow it programmatically. Um, and so for us, again, we kind of, the strategy is to meet advertisers and buyers where they want to transact. So if they want to transact programmatically, we want to meet them there. We just want to make sure that it's it's good business for us and good business for them. Uh, that's a, that's that's the way we look at it. Yeah, and so um, definitely, like the the direct programmatic, um, as you mentioned, is a big area of focus, and it allows for more conversations and a lot of uh, customization too with with how. Uh, ads are purchased. With the open marketplace, though, that's where we factor in the verification firms and the third-party data, news rating, brand safety kind of uh, grading um, players. And um, for the listeners who have not yet read the story I wrote about the role of verification firms on Digiday.com, do so for more context there, but we'll pick up that conversation here too. We've spoken about how those roles, the the third-party players can generalize a lot of content coming from one domain, right? So if you have The Guardian classified as news or breaking news, there are a degree of advertisers who are just going to completely negate buying against that. Um, How have you been trying to navigate that issue? And also, how much of an issue is it? <laughs> I guess I'm curious, like, what does the like actual grades look like and uh, how much revenue is, you know, lost when brand safety concerns come into play and, and sometimes is, you know, out of your hands to handle it? I mean, I think that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know the exact, in terms of the grading, um, where we stand. Um, I can tell you that, and I think you cite some of these examples on in the article that you wrote that, um, you know, we see uh, CPMs get lowered by 25% when our content is deemed unsafe. Um, we see that um, when there is uh, inventory, when we are typically our inventory is flagged for unsafe unsafe content, um, about, about 1% on any given day. But when there's a major news event, like the Syrian Turkish uh, earthquake, it swells up to 10 to 15%. We, we lose revenue when obviously when that happens, um, <clears throat> because people are not, you know, f- basically filling in, um, in where they need to be. Our CPMs get lowered. So there's, a loss of, of revenue there. Um, so it is an issue. Um, it's especially an issue because, and I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit here, but, you know, working with the guardian, you know, we're covering the biggest issues of, 
of the day. So whether it's uh, combating racial inequity, um, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, obviously any any daily work, any daily world crisis, the climate crisis, um, it's it's serious work and it's work that our audiences um, want. You can't capture that uh, <coughs> via when you're using verification tools, um, those tools, and I, people have used this word, are very blunt and opaque, and they don't take into account um, all the work and the context of the environment um, that that's being done. So as I said earlier, it's unfortunately easy um, for someone who's transacting and doesn't know that um, to kind of click the box and say, no news. So you ask, how are we combating this? Um, and I obviously read the article you wrote, and it's not perhaps dissimilar to what some other publishers said in that you know, article, and I said earlier as well. And one way is educating the marketplace about who we are and showcasing our value. Uh, and no one could really do that better than we can. So when I say that, it's not just with direct advertisers and buyers and investment strategists, but it's also with the SSPs and the folks at the agencies who are who, who are doing this. Uh, we need to treat them like anyone else, like direct buyers as well. They need to know who we are. Um, so I, you're going to see us make more of a considered effort to educate the marketplace um, about who we are. Another way that we do this is um, we have ongoing research about how our readers feel about brands that show up in news environments. And I think that we want to continue doing that and showcasing it uh, wherever and whenever we can. So um, that's uh, a second way of doing it. Um, and I, I think given that research, um, whatever data and facts that come of that research, we really need to arm buyers and advertisers with it so they feel more confident in investing uh, with us. But it's, it's you know, it's not easy. I would say that in terms of the news category, uh, and I think I read this also, we, we do want to work with our, you know, with SSPs in, in general, uh, about classifying us not just as news, but as lifestyle, as sports. Um, and I would say, I would add another classification that I mean, we'd spent a lot of time on already, but that is uh, people who want to transact um, in an automated way for their CSR and ESG budgets. So we see um, uh, that as a big opportunity for us because we think obviously that's our sweet spot. So we want to make sure that uh, where we get bucketed under that classification um, as well, um, because we've seen a lot of agencies and buyers who want to transact with publishers that are doing good. So there's a lot of work to be done, Kaylee, but um, I, I don't know. I think a combination of those things um, will get us to a better place. Right. And um, it referenced uh, from the publishers I spoke to for that story, and it sounds like um, from you as well, it, it's a lot of ongoing conversations, right? It's like there's so many different uh, players or so many different um, SSPs and verification firms and um, 
people that you have to basically ask to uncouple, you know, all of your content from the news, like, label. Um, I guess, has there been any kind of ease with getting that done? Or has it been more difficult? Like, I guess, has it gotten any easier as, you know, this issue is being talked about so by so many different people in the industry, not just, you know, one one publication asking for this? Right. Uh, I don't think it's gotten e- easier, but I, ex- I hope uh, that in the upcoming quarters that it will get easier. Um, and I think there's probably an opportunity for us, uh, for us news publishers to band together to kind of make a more forceful argument here as well. Yeah. And then um, looking at the uh, direct uh, programmatic side of things too, um, you mentioned like the education comes into play. You mentioned that there's been um, a lot of uh, proprietary work done in-house to try and um, improve like your own kind of self uh, ratings or or contextual kind of analysis of your content as well. Um, Can you talk about like how uh, you've been building up that side of the business and how that's been helping and and drive um, business in the, you know, private marketplace or programmatic guaranteed? We, we have been trying to kind of, we have a lot of data. So we have a lot of buying, a lot of signals and we have been trying to work on um, different solutions that don't necessarily um, rely on kind of these third parties. Um, So I think, you know, there's, again, that's progressing. I think there's work to be done there. Um, I think the other way that we're tackling this is that, um, we know when um, content is unsafe, and so we kind of uh, self-regulate and we kind of turn off ads um, as well internally. So for the Ukraine war, for example, uh, we didn't have any ads um, you know, running um, during our coverage um, our very early coverage on the Ukraine war. Another example is um, uh, when Queen Elizabeth, died last fall, we didn't have any ads running there as well. And so uh, we kind of take these examples and we go educate uh, the, the private marketplaces about, um, you know, what we do um, during these sort of times. And I, I think that's been you know, really helpful, but uh, we got to continue to do that. There's just kind of two random examples, but it's the type of thing that we kind of keep going back and and talking about it. Um, I think, you know, we have been exploring kind of more contextual solutions as well. Um, There's more news. Can't really talk a lot about that, but there's more news to come with that. But that's something that um, once it happens and we're ready to talk about, we want to go into the marketplace and, and, and really educate buyers about that and that opportunity as well. Got it. All right. Um, last question for you. You had referenced uh, your work at Now This when you were with Group Nine, and I know how social focused and how video um, oriented that brand is. Curious if that's um, an area that you're looking to bring into the Guardian, if the Guardian already kind of plays in that area, or how that experience might be coming into uh, into the mix too from an advertising perspective. Yeah, vi- video is so. Our new fiscal, as I mentioned, starts in April, and we have. Um, focus on new ad products and new opportunities. And video is certainly uh, one of those things that we are um, very aware that we need to expand on. And so 
Um, you know, we're looking at creation of, you know, vertical video, um, doing more visual journalism. Um, we don't necessarily, you know, want to become now this. I mean, that's, that's kind of a different audience that they have there. And, um, we want to stay true to what the guardian is about, but we know that we can be doing more in the video space. So we absolutely will be focused on that. Um, and it's kind of some more, I would say traditional news sites, uh, opportunities for us that we're going to be focused on are newsletters. We have a ton of newsletters. A lot of them are generated at the UK level from the UK. We have a few generated from the US, um, but we know that we should have more US focused newsletters. So uh, we're going to do that as well. Um, we're also creating better ad units to enhance performance. Again, I was talking about KPIs earlier. So we want to make sure we do that. Um, and then I think the last thing, kind of drawn on the analogy of now this or, or group nine, um, there was a lot of events that were created um, over there um, and they did. And we know that a lot of news organizations, news organizations are big on events. We're looking at doing one event for next year uh, in the next 12 months. Okay, we want to focus on one because we want to make sure we get it right. Um we want to make sure it's a signature guardian event that really kind of dimensionalizes who we are and what we stand for. Um, we're going to be looking for sponsorships there. Um, we're still kind of thinking through the details, inviting the public, people who know the guardian. We probably won't sell tickets to it um, because for us, it's just really another branding opportunity. And as I said, we're a challenger brand and a lot of what we want to do in the upcoming year is expand our brand. Awesome. Well, lots to keep uh, tabs on for this year, it sounds like. But thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. This is a really fun conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Excited to be here and um, exciting time for the U.S., Guardian U.S. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday Podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. We'll be back next week with another episode.